everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, a visiting fellow at AEI. And today we have a great guest with us. Her name is Sarah Font. She is an assistant professor of sociology at Penn State. She focuses on issues there related to child maltreatment and the child welfare system. And these are issues that are getting, unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of attention lately with the lockdowns in place all over the country. States are reporting a significant decrease in the reports of abuse and neglect that they're receiving. One of the reasons for that, of course, is that schools are out and teachers are mandated reporters and they're among the people who are most often reporting these things. So we wanted to talk to Sarah a little bit today about that and what we can do about it. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Can you give us just kind of like a little bit of an overview of what you think has happened over the last couple of months? You know, these reports have started to fall. What does that mean? Is it a problem at all? Maybe we're just over-reporting to begin with and we're not really having a problem. Yeah, so educational personnel account for at least one in five reports to CPS. And so it's not just the drop in educational reports, though that's a big part of it. Kids are also just not seeing the relatives that they would normally see. They're not encountering, you know, after school programs, churches, other people who keep eyes on these kids. So there's a proportion of, you know, really vulnerable kids who just have no contact with adults who aren't their caregivers right now. And I think that's a really big concern for their safety. Some people think, well, reporting to CPS is a bad thing. And this drop is therefore not a problem. And that just really comes down to whether you see CPS as an agency that tries to protect kids and sometimes does a good job and sometimes doesn't, or whether you see CPS as some sort of agency that targets marginalized communities. And so there's certainly people who take that latter view. And Sarah, admittedly, we are in the time of a pandemic. Wouldn't we actually expect there to be more stress, more concern on the part of parents? Definitely. And there's been some reports, you know, that injuries, serious injuries to young kids have been rising based on reports to hospitals or kids showing up at hospitals. But for other types of maltreatment where maybe a child wouldn't be taken to the hospital, we just don't know how severe that is yet. And it's not just the stress of parents based on, you know, maybe they're losing their job, they're having other sorts of environments. A lot of parents, if you work or your kids are in school and they have other things, like you just don't spend that much time with them every day. For kids who have parents who, you know, have other sort of issues, maybe they're using substances or they have serious mental health problems, having all day every day with that parent can be a real, a real risk. Right. There's yeah. no safety valve. There's no like, I've had enough and now, you know, everyone's going to go their separate ways. And that, you know, has, has come up in some interviews I've done as a real issue. So, you know, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is kind of, is there anything that states can be doing. I think a lot of you know what I've read is mostly officials kind of wringing their hands and saying, we'll just have to assess the damage. I mean, everyone just wants to talk about, well, we'll see a big uptick in reports when all this is over. But in many states, we're, we're nowhere close to all this is over. So what do you think you know, states could be doing now? And, and one of the things I want to bring up is in LA County, Los Angeles County, the sheriff there offered a plan to have his deputies go knock on some doors. These were not going to be just, you know, random knocks on doors. It was going to be kids who were not, for instance, showing up at their Zoom classes online. And so there was just going to, that was going to be kind of the the pretext for the concern, I would say. What did you make of that plan? Did you think that it was reasonable because the local Child Protective Service had their 
Bobby Cagle said, no, thank you. We don't think this is a good idea. It's just going to stress out these parents more. So I think it was well-intentioned, right? We want for kids who have no access to any other adults where they can say, tell someone if they're unsafe, you know, you want someone to see that child and, you know, just verify their basic physical safety. But certainly there are communities that have a deep run distrust of the police. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy comes from. No one wants the police showing up to their house and particularly, you know, without some sort of credible suspicion that they need to be there. So my preference would be that someone checks in on these kids, but I'm not sure that it should be the police. Another couple of suggestions that people have given me are the possibility that schools could actually be doing more. And maybe, Ian, you could talk about this a little bit. I mean, could we be having, you know, kind of a drive-by where, you know, the teacher says, you know, come on out and talk to me for a little bit, or the bus driver pulls up and, you know, offers kids, you know, whether we distribute free lunches that way or something, instead of just waiting for the parents to take the initiative to come to the school to collect them, this would be a way of sort of, you know, saying, you know, part of showing up for school today is like coming out of your house and, and, you know, saying hello to your teacher or something like that, at least to have some kind of in-person contact. And the other suggestion that was made to me recently is that maybe, you know, social services, you know, not child protective services could be doing more, which is to say, if a family receives food stamps or, or, you know, some other kind of welfare benefits, whether that could be sort of, we'd like to, you know, come and see if you need anything else. And again, just have more of that in-person contact. Well, so I think the social services workers who handle public assistance cases usually have caseloads in the hundreds. So I think that would be quite a difficult lift for them to do. In the schools, it sounds like, Ian, your school is doing pretty well with having kids actually attend the virtual lessons so you can do more check-ins. But what can you do when kids just don't log in? Well, I think this is a a very important point. I mean, for many of us who are running schools, we're now in the third month of some level of remote distance learning. In our schools, we literally have live synchronous teaching where real time our kids can see into the homes of our kids, not for the purpose of spying, but for the purpose of, of teaching and learning. And then we have small group instruction. So that's why it's really, in some ways, an abdication where many school systems are simply just providing you know, guide sheets or lessons, but no real-time interaction between kids. So wouldn't that, it seems like that would be another big emphasis that schools don't have to be off the hook of still playing their role of observing and identifying kids that are in vulnerable situations. I also wonder whether, you know, the truancy laws can kind of help to cover this a little bit too, which is to say, you know, for schools that are reporting, you know, we haven't seen this kid, you know, in a month, that should still matter even if the way that they're supposed to be showing up is on Zoom. To that point, it sounds like the issue in Los Angeles was that it's the person that might be coming to visit is a police officer. There are lots of other kinds of maybe perhaps more trusted folks, whether it be social workers. You know, and what's the role of civil society here, faith-based organizations? Are there other entities that can be tapped that are more community-based, that, are, that have more embedded trust that can be simply providing, you know, wellness checks for kids? Yeah, I think it would be helpful at this, you know, in this point in time for people who do still have contact with kids on a regular basis to be reminded of their responsibilities to report and just of the risks that kids are facing right now and to kind of, you know, keep an extra eye out because sometimes those people who have a close connection with the family also are the people that are most reluctant to report. 
they might need sort of a little refresher just on, you know, what do you look out for and what do you do? And what actually happens when you report to CPS? Because I think a lot of families think, well, if I call CPS, they're going to come in, they're going to take the kids. And what people need to realize is that children are removed in only about 5% of CPS investigations. It's an extremely rare outcome. Vast majority of the time, families are either referred to voluntary community services or nothing happens at all. So it's not as scary of a prospect as I think people thinking about reporting sometimes fear that it is. That would seem to call for public information campaigns, either for folks to learn what you just described. You know, it's your duty if you're seeing something and maybe this is all better for the kid, as well as a public information campaign for parents that might be stressed out. What are the resources that do exist for someone who may have lost their job or they're, they're feeling stressed? What is, what's out there that can help them bring down the temperature if, if they're feeling themselves getting out of control? I also just wanted to talk here for a minute about who are the kids who are most at risk? Because I think that should be part of the campaign too, particularly if we're not talking about necessarily mandated reporters, but we're talking about relatives or neighbors or something like that. Oddly, you know, it's not as much as we're focused on the kids who are not, you know, in school now because they're on Zoom meetings. A lot of the problem here is going to be kids who are not even school age yet. And how do we, you know, if these are kids who are not capable of reaching out themselves to other adults, you know, by phone or, or communicating them with in another way. So, Sarah, who would you say are the, you know, are the kids that we most need to be worried about over the next couple of months? Certainly the, you know, children under three and under account for the vast majority of child maltreatment-related fatalities. And that's partly because, you know, they're more vulnerable and also they just require, they're a lot more dependent on their parents. And so the risk to them is fairly substantial. The other kids who can be fairly vulnerable right now would be, you know, children with disabilities who also require a lot more intensive care from their parents and can create more stress in the home. And then lastly, I mean, there's a, we know that children that are come to the attention of CPS, a lot of them do so again and again, and they experience, you know, multiple incidents of maltreatment. So families that have a history of maltreatment would also be, you know, a situation that would be at a particularly high risk right now. And do you think, I mean, you know, we've been talking a little bit about this question of other people besides law enforcement who could come visit these kids. I mean, you know, obviously CPS already had, you know, kids in the system before this happened. Do you have any sense of whether they're doing a good job out there, you know, continuing to do their regular visits and investigations? I mean, you know, many of these people are are probably worried for their own safety. Are they more reluctant to go into homes? Are people more reluctant to let them in? How is that playing out, do you think? I mean, there's definitely been reports that the frontline caseworkers are being sent to homes, you know, without any sort of like safety equipment, without masks, that sort of stuff, which, you know, these are not highly paid workers. It's a big risk to ask them to take. So hopefully some of those issues in terms of having appropriate equipment have been resolved by now. But I do think there's some reluctance for them to to expose themselves in this way. And so in some cases, I think they're doing some virtual check-ins as well, but there's really no substitute for in-person visits for these families where you know it's already been demonstrated that there's a serious risk of harm. But have you also seen that there's reluctance on the part of the folks to have people come into their homes, given their concerns about bringing the virus into, into their homes? Does that create another impediment? Potentially. I'm not really sure in that regard. And I think, you know, unfortunately, there's already quite a lot of, it's already fairly difficult to engage families 
you know, through Child Protective Services. So I would imagine that there's already such an impediment that the risk of the virus might just be not a huge difference. So in terms of, you know, everyone wants to talk about kind of what's going to happen. And obviously, in, in many places in the country, the lockdowns have started to lift. So what do you think we should be doing in those places, you know, to kind of catch up and figure out, you know, what it is that has gone on? I mean, obviously, it's hard to sort of do this investigation after the fact. But what should we be doing now that the lockdowns are lifting in a lot of places? That's a tough question because even, you know, the lockdowns are lifting, but schools are getting ready to let out for summer. And so I think the most important thing is to try to identify kids who, you know, maybe aren't safe right now before the end of school. When is this it makes an argument for difficult. doing more like, you know, summer programming? I mean, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of back and forth now. Can we hold camp? You know that. But I wonder whether people are weighing this as a potential issue in terms of, you know, wondering what, what are the benefits of having that those sort of programs? Well, I mean, also, if parents are returning to work, you can't not have any summer programs because then kids are going to be left alone or they're going to be potentially left with people who might not be appropriate. There's no you know, licensed daycares open or other sorts of appropriate, stable situations. All right. Well, those are all the questions we have for you today. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. We really appreciate your your input on this important topic of how to prevent and stop and, you know, hopefully end some of the abuse and neglect that seems to have been going on under the radar in the last couple of months. With that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley and... I'm Ian Rowe. And this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can find us on the AEI website or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.